remain standing as we read God's word together. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went, and the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was seventy-five years old when he departed from Haran. And Abram took Sarai his wife, and Lot his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered, and the people that they had acquired in Haran, and they set out to go to the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place of Shechem and to the yoke of Morah. And at the time, the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed on, still going toward Negev. This is the word of the Lord. school if I misappropriate my words or something that I say uh, feel free to call me or make an appointment to come speak with me uh, just in case let me give you an example in our Sunday school today I wanted to portray an example that the Bible says that God blesses orange versus yellow yellow is better yeah so God says that Adam and Eve were naked and they did not know it. Now, when you look at that knowledge verb, and uh, the idea is, it does not mean that Adam and Eve couldn't see each other, that they have no clothes on. So when uh, Adam and Eve tasted of the tree of knowledge and good and evil, what happened? They realized they were naked. So one, it's a visible view, and one is a spiritual realization. Now, this gives us a great lesson for us, because there is a way they think are or view and the youth group had an event and they played go they played uh, um, bowling last night and some of them would go there like eddie and try to hit it really fast and the ball looked really good and then not that many pins were falling down <laughs> and uh, and then i said you know we're old enough to realize that looks can be deceiving 
uh, but nonetheless, I think uh, the, one of the reasons is for us is to to be uh, to understand how we use words. And yes, I want to apologize to 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 Paul. I didn't want to mean that they knew that they were naked. They didn't know. That was very true. Is that they had the ability to see that they were naked, but they couldn't connect that with the knowledge that came from them eating out of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So continue to pray for me that the Lord will give me the insight to portray some of those nuances in a way that it's easy for people to understand and to find the right words as we approach God's word. So I apologize to you, brother. Uh, but anyway, um, one of the things that I realize I should have used is Imagine someone doesn't have the knowledge of sin. And you're at home and you have a knife and you're cutting vegetables and you say, oh, that's a tool. Someone who has knowledge of sin and evil, they can say, well, that's a weapon. It doesn't mean that both of them don't see the knife. Does that kind of make sense? So... Unfortunately, that brings us to why uh, we struggle as pastors because many times you have to look at Greek and Hebrew and it's not easy to bring it back to English that lacks the words, uh, lacks the tenses and ideas uh, because it's reality is it's a much weaker language. That's just the way we're stuck with it. Um, so today... As we're moving through our uh, reading through the Bible scheme, I hope that you are blessed by it. Uh, there are about 20, 21 people here on Wednesday discussing. We're going to increase the discussion time here and prayer time together. You're more than welcome to come and not only bring questions, but what the Lord impresses on you. So please join us. But today we have come to this place of great importance. I mean, is there a place in the Bible that is not of great importance? No. I mean, the Bible, it says not one iota of the word of God will pass away. Heavens and earth may pass away, but not an iota of his word will pass away. So it is very important. Now, when we begin uh, looking at this story, um, we have to backtrack a little bit because you may have heard pastors begin to speak about this story slightly different. How many of you have heard that this call first started with Terah and not with Abraham? Did any of you hear a pastor say that? And if you look at Genesis 11, you begin to see. Now, these are the generations of Terah. Terah fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran, and Haran fathered Lot. Haran died in the presence of his father, Terah in, uh, in the land of his kindred, in Ur of the Chaldeans. And Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife, Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah, and Iscah. Now Sarai was barren, she had no child. Now look at this verse. Terah took Abram his son, and Lot, the son of Haran, his grandson, and daughter-in-law. 
the daughter-in-law, his son Abram's wife, and they went forth together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan. Now, when you look at this text, it says that Terah took them to Canaan. The problem is, what happened to their journey? But they came to Haran, they settled there. So now the question is, did God really tell Terah or was this Abraham all the way through and he took it? And I think you have to be careful how you answer that because if you say Abraham took him, then why is Terah the subject of verse 31? It says that Terah took Abraham, not Abraham took Terah. Do you see the, the problem of how you approach this? So now you have pastors who, uh, some will say it was Abraham and some will say it was Terah explaining this. One thing is for sure, when God calls you, one of the biggest obstacles may end up being your, your family. Oh, really? Oh, you're your family. Did Jesus have any pleasant things with his family? His hometown, was, he well, was Jesus well received in his hometown? If you are called by God and you're walking through your call... Now we have uh, the Lord say, unless you leave your mother, your father, your spouse, your children, you are not worthy of me. My goodness. I guess the word of the Lord is very consistent from Genesis all the way through the end. And it's, it's very easily seen here. And we have other parts of the scriptures which tell us that Abraham definitely spoke. Now, many scholars believe that it took 25 years of this journey and them staying there. Uh, we don't know the details, but Joshua gives us some details. Joshua tells them that they did what here? So now you come to a very problematic aspect when God says, okay, go to there, to, to, to go, go to Canaan. So basically, here's, uh, uh, here's Chaldea, Ur. The state is Uruk. It's called the cradle of civilization. You begin to move up in, from Chaldea into Mesopotamia, and you come to Haran, and then you have to drop down into the Canaan area. So this is kind of like the semicircle that they had to travel on. They stopped in Haran, but now Joshua tells us that they worshipped idols, false gods. It was a it was false worship. So if God called them out, so now the accentuation is that the call is to Abram. And you can say it's out of respect. Because Terah was the father of Abram for him to be put first as the subject, as the head of the family. Because this was culturally how it was uh, given. So, uh, you know, that's why you will see pastors kind of swaying back and forth. 
um, because of those two. And I wasn't sure if you guys have heard uh, pastor on each side of this uh, place where they stand. But nonetheless, the emphasis shouldn't be on that. The emphasis should be on the fact that God is calling Abram out of idolatry. And Joshua says that. Who else in the New Testament tells us besides Joshua? I will give you a hint. Is in the Acts chapter 7 and he's the first martyr. Stephen. Stephen says the same thing. So we see that confirmed even in the New Testament that they were idol worshipers. So here we have the creator of civilization. Ur was very famous for inventing the first. So it's the creator of civilization, uh, very luxurious, wealthy people, smart people. But in indoor bathhouses was kind of like the, the coolest thing to go and to hang out within society. And, uh, uh, you know, there's a lot of uh, uh, culture that tells us about the worshipers of the moon there. And Zoroastrianism, and you see now background all the way uh, through the mages that at one point will appear to come to worship the true worshiper. And they go back to this route and get... Who, who ministers to those mages that appear Jesus is coming? I'll tell you a, a, a hint. It happens in Babylon. Who was there very important to minister to them about the truth of the prophetic and God's word? Daniel. And these guys appear when Jesus was birthed, and the very people who were carrying God's truth and his word, they were oblivious to the sign. But anyway, it's interesting how we look back. Abram is also called who? The friend of God. But in relation to us, what is Abram's title? Because Abram is related to you and I today. And you say, well, how come? Father of faith. And we do not come under the covenant of Jacob or the law as the Jews do. The pagans who have accepted Jesus, they've accepted the gospel by faith. And Abraham is our father of faith faith and it says that through him every nation will be blessed so we see this covenant by faith god putting this mechanism and this plan at work with abraham well sorry abram because he's not quite abraham yet as god will change both him and his wife's names but what is the parallel between Abraham, Abram, who is our father, and therefore he ought to be an example to you and I, if he's our father of faith. Is there a parallel? And let's speak about the calling. Leave, go forth, your country, your relatives, your family, your comfort. I mean, why would you leave the crater of civilization and go in the desert? It kind of reminds me of Jesus Christ. 
Why wouldn't Jesus just go into Mecca, Jerusalem, and get all the smart people around and make a mega church there? Why would he travel to the small little towns, most of his ministries around, and have followers who are uneducated? And hmm, interesting. And he picks up from where he left. You and I don't come to God from being in the middle of the world. We come to God from a place of being in the desert and being called. So leave, go forth. Jesus calls us. And what is the common call of every believer that Jesus says? Follow me. So guess what? Look at everyone around you. And you are now connected because every one of you who truly is a Christian has heard the calling. And that calling is follow me. Now, where is Jesus taking his followers? Now, this is not a trick question. Think of the New Testament. Where did Jesus want to take his followers? John and Peter, where was he guiding them towards? Yeah, the promised land. What is the promised land? Okay, that's, a, that's even further than I was going to ask that next. What is the promised land for people? For us? What is our promised land? Heaven. Yeah. That, that is, a, you know, you are what in this world? Sojourner, travelers, right? You know, this is not our home. We, we, we're, you know, we're aliens here, if you were to use the Greek word used by, by Peter in First Peter. Uh, but nonetheless... Uh, you see stickers on the car, N-O with a T in it and a W, not of this world. That's what it's meant to, to say. And this is the, the, the reality. But literally, as Jesus was discipling his followers on the road, where, were, where was he taking them? To the cross. To the foot of the cross. And I don't know if you guys noticed, the mega church dwindled down quite a bit by the time he got to the, to the, to the cross. Quite a bit it didn't dwindle down. But anyway, we look at our text and we come to realize that there's a direction in our life. And where does the direction come from? God, not you and I. So the beautiful aspect about the calling of God is that it releases responsibility for the direction of your life. What does that mean? Who are you dependent on? If you don't have the responsibility to make plans for your own for your own life, then what is your responsibility? To obey? 
I, I, I want to be more simplistic. Have Jesus be the apple of your eyes. So now my responsibility is not to plant my eye, but to make sure that Jesus is the apple of the eye. So many pastors will come and say, are you as a person or are you as a church Christ-centered? Meaning, is Jesus and his life guiding you in the center of your life? Now, I know some people won't like this because we live in a polluted day by the world. Uh, but the reality is, is that God chose Abraham. Abram, sorry, I keep using Abraham. God chose Abram. You know, you say, well, that's not fair. What about the rest of the people? The reality is, is that God chose Abram and singled him out from all of the other idolaters. What does this tell us in our walk? Salvation is a, an, a personalized experience. And that's why, ideally, before we get baptized, we would like to hear a, what do we call that? Testimony. testimony. A testimony of what? Of how you were called, how you were saved, how Jesus moved in and through your life. The other aspect is, now we said, do you still have that unmemorized, AJ, that verse? That I asked the church to memorize? Yes. Anyone else knows that verse fully? Okay, I'll ask next week. <laughs> no, but we are the clay and you are the potter. Let's begin to see. We are all at fault and in the wrong right now if this is information. Because if we claim we are the clay, you are the potter, what does this mean? If I have a personal call from God, and I'm in his hands, just the way last week we said, as we looked at God's word and our relationship with God's word, unless the word of God is the final authority in all matters of faith and life, the potter can't really work with us. Today we see, unless Jesus Christ is Lord over everything in your life and my life, the potter can't work with us. So now we saw one element last week, which is about authority. And for us, the final authority in all matters is directly what the Bible says. Now, as we have a personal relationship with the Lord, with God, what it means is that if I have a calling, 
there is a throne resurrected inside my heart where Jesus sits. He is now Lord. So you want to come to church and not just hear information? Is because you ought to interact with the fact that, hey, the potter is at hand and he wants to mold the clay. You will not experience it unless Jesus is Lord of your life. How can Jesus be Lord of your life and mine? And I make this image of the throne of Jesus. The material for the throne of Jesus in your life and mine needs to be not gold, not ivory, not wood, not stone. You can't really put that inside of us. So what type of, uh, of material gets to put inside of us so we can, re- so we can erect this, this uh, beautiful uh, uh, throne in our life where we can see wonderfully Jesus, you know, being our Lord. It is a material that is very pleasing to the sound of God's ears. It's called surrender. Have you heard of this material? You can go to Home Depot and buy it. It's called surrender. I wonder how much they ask for surrender at Home Depot or Lowe's, uh, you know, to, to build this temple. It's called surrender. Because look, to go forth, he had to surrender a lot of stuff. Not only comfort and niceness and things, but even his own wants and direction and luxuries and needs. Now, I told you where Jesus was taking the disciples Guess what happens with Abraham? What does John 8, 56 tell us? Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day and saw it and was glad. That is the cross and resurrection. And this happened when? When the Lord told him to do a very unpleasant thing. Do you think you can do this unless the Lord is on the throne of your life? Take your one and only son whom you love and go and sacrifice him for me. And he says, early in the morning he took off. You say, well, he took off early because he didn't want to tell his wife and have a family argument. Uh, I I, want to take it that he's left early because he wanted to be obedient to the Lord. You and I need to experience the cross and resurrection of Jesus for the ability of the throne to be erected and to rejoice in that reality. Mm. Let's see if, if the Bible is true. And if you are a skeptic, then we ought to see it in the life of, uh, in the life of Abram already. So let's, let's search and see if that's true. 
So we talked about how God says, follow me. Uh, you know, um, this means both for us personally, but for, both for us as a church. Guess what happened to Abram? He left with a few. By the time he came to Canaan, he was more powerful than some of the kings. That's how much God blessed him. God appears to him. What do we do with God appearing? Say, hey, you and I need to have an experience with God. And that's why Jesus wants to bring his followers to have that experience at the cross. And that's why Paul said, I preach Christ and him crucified. So now, for you and I, when we come to church, the experience that we all have, we have the voice of the Lord that's calling us, follow me. We all who call upon his name ought to have experienced the cross and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And as we come to church, that is a reality of our life in Christ that Christ gives us. Is that something that it's a reality for you and I today? How is it a reality for Abram? What did he do to show us that reality? Because we are blessed now beyond measure to know the love of God. That while we were still sinners, he gave his son for us to die for us. What did Abraham do? Abram, he resurrected an altar. And this is where we'll accentuate. There's a lot of things for us to to uh, to talk about here, but we will look at the reaction of the reality of the calling of God and the reaction of an experience with God and the reality of knowledge of God. So he says, so, this is so, therefore it's an action after this. So he built an altar there to the Lord who appeared to him. Therefore, my question to you and I is now, do you have an altar in your life? He says now that the body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Is there an altar? Is there a place where you come to interact with God or the altar? Where you have spiritual transactions. Even more so when you come to church, when we are a church here, is there that reality for you that I'm coming at the altar? And I'll tell you something. There can be no true Christian, there can be no true church 
without the beauty of the altar's presence. And you say, well, what's an altar? Altar, if you look in Hebrew, it means slaughter. It means slaughter. Uh, the calling of altar means the slaughter of self. Yeah, I'm going. I'm leaving everything behind. Altar slaughter is now we see in the temple. How many, how many altars in the temple? Two altars, right? One is you enter through the gate as the Holy Spirit brings you into the fold of God, towards the presence of God. You ultimately want to get into the Holy of Holies, into His most holy presence. As you walk into the temple, what's the very first thing that you saw? It's called the brazen altar. What is the brazen altar? It's where you bring meat sacrifices, also grain off uh, sacrifices. Does that take you back to Cain and Abel? So it's not that Cain brought an animal, that Abel brought an animal and Cain brought a grain. They're both acceptable and they both continued. And that's the brazen altar. It's also called the table of the Lord. Is it because God wants to eat with us? Does he say, you know, at one point the Lord tells us, I'm sick of your sacrifices. There's another altar, and it's called the altar of incense. And that is, once you pass a couple of stations, you walk into the holy place where only the priest could walk in, and there it's an altar of incense, and it's representing prayer and it's right before the curtain as you are meant to walk into the holy of holies <coughs> so what is this altar when you come to church oh we have no oh we have a cross This is the perpetual altar for us, but it's going to be real here in the way you interact. So you cannot come into the presence of God with that reality, A, the only reason I am here and the only way I can begin to approach the presence of God is through this immense reality of his death and cross in my life. So that's how we ought to approach the church. And that's why we ought to value that that's present here for people to come at that altar. To surrender their life to Christ as God calls them into his fold. So my question to you, if that's a reality in your life, it ought to be a reality in the church where you go. And you ought to see People coming forward. Can you come forward before God without Jesus? No. Can people come here and experience Jesus without coming to the altar of your church? 
Where's the altar in this church? Where are people coming forward to interact with God? And you say, well, you know, God appeared to him. But then you look at verse 8. Does it say that God appeared to Abraham another time? No. He built an altar to call upon his name. The reality of the altar. Now the question is, where do you interact with the presence of God? Do you know what happens? If there's no altar, there's no commitment. There's no commitment in churches. There's no commitment in people's lives. Oh, I'll go there, I'll do this, I'll do this. The reality of the altar comes with a great cost. Because you are fully surrendered and you're fully involved. Well, isn't it enough that I serve there and there and there? This is different. This is how you approach God. And I cannot do that for you. The burden is on you. So now... How do you build an altar? Personally, I understand, but you say, well, I'm a family. You know, Eddie, I need Eddie. Eddie's telling me, how do I build up an altar in my own home? I'll give you very practical advice. Don't go and, uh, uh, when you have an argument with your wife, don't go and close the door and argue together so the kids can hear you. Argue. And then get on your knees before the altar in their presence to see how you deal with things. From a young age to an old age. And tell them to come join. We say, okay, let me hide. You come to church. I can't go to the altar in the front because people might hear that I have issues or that I'm struggling with something. Wow. You can't hide things from God in your own life. There's an, there ought to be an altar in your own heart, in the holy temple within you. There ought to be an altar to the church, but we build walls to not make that be reality. Why not do it at home too? That's just a practical step. I remember struggling in my marital counseling with my wife, and the Lord said, yeah, you got to bring in the presence. So I said, that's it. If I have a disagreement or argument with my wife, I will not go to bed until we're on our knees praying. And sometimes it took me hours of asking my wife repeatedly to get on our knees and to pray. And I did not like to do that at all. And I didn't want to do that sometimes. But I knew that that's what the Lord taught me. And that his presence was more important than what I wanted or what she wanted. I'm not trying to show my kids that I'm perfect. But did I come in the presence of one who is? So that is why Deuteronomy 6. That's why I tell you, read the word of God with your kids. 
Pray together with your kids. Don't let a wonderful thing happen for you and your family and not come to praise God together on your knees and, and pray to Him. Don't let a bad thing go without that ministry to your family. It's an opportunity for you and I. The flesh wants you to hide it because of shame. And I tell you, if that's the case and that you've been trapped by shame in your life, it's because you have not heard from the Lord. Because when he's on the cross, you will hear that he took away not only your sin, but your shame too. Because he shamed himself on the cross. You have no more right to shame at the altar. No more right to shame. So an altar for me, I try to find some things. Personally, it is a place of encounter. It is a place of forgiveness. A place of praise and worship. Of wholeness. Of redirection. A place of covenant. A place of intercession. The strength of our church is as great as the reality of the altar of God in our midst. I hate to say this to you because I've been struggling when people come to me. Pastor, you, you know, I'm so glad you're here. Uh, you're our Savior. And I'm, I'm telling you, there's only one Savior. And it's very hard for me to hear that because there's nothing I can do for this church. But I know who can. I want to remove myself from the equation and tell you there's God. There's the Holy Spirit. And regardless of the people he uses, there ought to be a reality because of your relationship with him in your own temple, in your own heart. There ought to be a temple in your own home. And there ought to be a great temple here. In John 1, when, the, when John the Baptist tells his uh, people about Jesus, this is the Lamb, and they run after him, and they just spend an, uh, an afternoon with Jesus, and they go back and they say, they don't know what to say, they go, Come and see. We're his followers today. You tell your people, come to church, come and see. They don't want to see Jeremy or me up here. They don't want to see if I have an accent or I preach badly or how good his voice is or not. Or the mistakes that are being made. Why are we bringing people here to come and see? 
very altar that God puts in our midst. I want to ask you to rethink your life, your prayer life. I want to ask you to rethink your family, your marriage, your relationship with your kids. I want to ask you to rethink how you come to church. You say, well, pastor, you should have told me this because Ecclesiastes 5 now makes sense. Be careful as you come to the house of the Lord. Because the altar of the Lord is holy. It is life-giving. It is a place where you and I connect with God. Now let me ask you this. If you lack a personal life of prayer, a personal life of praise, and a personal experience with Jesus as your Savior and the cross on which he died for you, all of what I'm saying is irrelevant for your church and for your family. And now I look at AJ and I wonder how is his commitment to the great altar or the lack of no altar here at church. And every one of you who come here because you have a part to play for the Holy Spirit is within you and your body is the temple of that. And if it's a temple, you can't have a temple without the altar. So now you make sense why Paul says, For I, it is no longer I who live, for I have been crucified with Christ. What is that? But the reality, he's saying, there's a temple in me. And I'm telling you that's a reality. And now we not only join here to say we're followers of Jesus... We have experienced Jesus, but to bring forth at the altar with our praise, with our gifts, with our requests, with our intercessions, the reality that is present in our life. Guess what? That's full commitment. Guess what? That makes you participants, not fans. Because it's the priesthood of all believers. And I'm not a savior. Jesus is a savior. I'm here appointed by Christ to equip the reality that you already ought to have. Not to replace the reality that isn't here. That's God's work. Don't bring blasphemy towards me by saying those things. And the Holy Spirit will begin to move in those places that become holy, where He's worshipped, where we interact with His presence, and things will begin to move and happen.
can I do a little ministry to you? Any of you have hurts in your life? Nobody has hurts in their life? Nothing they, in your past, nothing? Anything has, do you have pieces that you're shameful of? Anybody has regrets? Nobody has regrets, wow. Have any of you sinned before? Huh? You too, Ed? You, you, you're a sinner like me? Oh. You know, when, when I look at surrender, guys, and when Jesus molds me, you know what he says? It's those broken pieces that you need to bring together in your life to resurrect the altar. It's my filth and my junk. That's what draws me. His love. So it aches me if that's not reality for you when you come to church. If I don't see that. If other people don't see that. It aches me if you're a Christian family and you can't witness that to them because you don't have an altar in your home. It aches me that we come to church and we run a program. Be careful how you come to the house of the Lord. I wish I could be like the apostles. Hey, come and see. Church is not about anyone in the church. But it's about God. I got to say, there's a lot of sin in this church. The stench is everywhere. Yet the Lord wants to raise an altar in our midst. wants to raise an altar in your broken life with all the regrets, sins, and past. Will you begin a real life of prayer where you begin to draw those broken sticks of regrets and those broken rocks of sin and rebellion and ignorance and pride? And will you bring them together? with a glow of sacrifice to see him at work. And if you do that, you'll want you'll to come to church to be in his presence, to call upon his name. To redeem your life. To deliver your life. And if people came like that and you saw them interacting at the altar like that, probably, we would probably look differently. Abraham saw my day and was glad and rejoiced 
from being wealthy and comfortable at home, tearing with no home in the desert with all the hardships. Because when you interact with the Lord, that love and joy carries you. And he pulls you like a magnet time and time again to his altar. I remember when I preached there in some churches, I have older men and women come to me and says, why didn't you tell me 40 years ago when I got married? This church is not about you, it's not about I, it's not about the bylaws, it's not about a lot of things that are important. But it will only stand about the reality of the presence of the altar of God to you and I. As you go home, try to implement those things, but as a weight upon your heart, I want to challenge you to say, hey, how do I come to church next week? Will my lips be moving to a song that I don't even mean? Or will it make me get down on my knees? Or will it make me raise my hands? Or will it make me begin to cry? Or will it make me begin to dance or shout? We don't want to make this a zoo. That's not the point. The point is that there's a transaction. There's an interaction with God. And I can clearly see that it captured Abram's heart. And I'm so glad this happens in the middle of many of his sins. Because right after we read this and we go, wow, Abraham... He lies about his wife. Aren't you glad that it's not for perfect people? (laughs) That he was a work in progress? Let's bow our heads and pray. Father, we have to repent today. We have to maybe be refined again, redefined again. Lord, how important is the Holy Spirit within us? How important is your Lordship within our life? How important is our personal praise and connection in prayer with you in our life? but also in our family and also in our church. So Lord, I pray that your spirit will convict us about our commitment to what you've done on the cross and your calling for our life. And also for our love towards the altars in our life, 
for our Father is teaching us to come and to build altars. So thank you, Lord, that you as a potter have began to mold us and to tell us that we are altar builders. I pray for the mothers, for the fathers to build altars into their home. May you empower them. For people who lead any ministry to be empowered by learning how to build altars in their ministry. And Lord, we would like to raise a beautiful altar here at this church that will shine so bright that the whole world will know about it. And we ask in Jesus' name.